Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 6 as we continue our way through the book of Acts, continuing to pick our way through the scriptures. This morning we're going to be just focusing in on one aspect of this particular text. We'll continue to look at it next week. But I just uh, I want to read to you, this is Acts 6, 13. We'll just read this portion and then we'll ask for God to help us by his spirit. And then we will we'll get to work looking at the text. They set up false witnesses and, who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's pray. Father, we just ask this morning that you would show us, God, exactly what it was that your son was doing when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. We ask you, O Lord, that you would show us exactly what it was that Stephen was doing when he continued to insist that your son was and would continue to destroy the temple. And Father, we pray that you would help us to understand in what way these witnesses were false that accused Stephen. Above all, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful to your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the moving-making business of Hollywood, film noir is a genre or style of cinema that emphasizes a particular type of lighting, uh, dark, dark backgrounds with well, brightly lit foregrounds and the use of expressive shadows all throughout. You may not know exactly off the top of your head what I mean by film noir, but I'm sure you've all seen it. Take, for example, the classic Frankenstein uh, movie in which you have Frankenstein emerging from the cellar and you don't see him. You see a door open and there's a shadow sort of cast on the far wall and you see this shadow of this monster sort of coming and it's the, the shadow gets bigger and bigger and bigger and you know something is approaching and you forget the shadow at a certain point in time and you fix your gaze on the corner. You're holding the edge where you're sure that the monster is about to emerge And lo and behold, as sure as it does, you see it with all the horror that it represents. Imagine yourself, if you would, in that moment, paralyzed with fear, looking at this shadow, knowing that the shadow tells you that something is coming. You're waiting for it with anticipation and expectation and fear. And as soon as the monster emerges, let me ask you this. What happened to the shadow? Are you still looking for the shadow, or do you see the monster? Now, in this particular text, that's exactly what the Pharisees and the priests are accusing Stephen of doing, insisting, as they were, on the importance of the shadow in which Stephen was suggesting that the shadow at this point was irrelevant because the Savior had come. As we look at this text this morning, I want to invite you 
If you find yourself in a place identifying with the priests and the Pharisees, thinking that all the ritual and all the ceremony and all the pomp and circumstance of religion is of more value than knowing Christ. I want to invite you this morning to trade the shadow for the Savior. Look with me at Acts chapter 6. There's a couple of things that are said here. In verse 13, it says they set up, number one, note this, false witnesses. They set up false witnesses, and here's what the false witnesses said. Number two, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. So he is speaking against the holy place and the law. And they go on in verse 14, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses has delivered to us. So there are three questions that we need to ask ourselves. And the reason why this is significant, as we're looking at the background here, we know Stephen is one of the men who is appointed as a deacon. We know his job initially was to minister to the widows of the church to make sure that the daily distribution was equal and fair. But we know that even though these men were appointed to serve in a physical sense, clearly they are also masters of the word. We recall from the last time we were here that the reason that the church established deacons was that the word and the preaching of the word would not be hindered. But as we consider these men, we understand that they are preachers of the word in their own right. And Stephen here is preaching and proclaiming the word. And now he is coming up against a very serious trial and a very serious accusation. A charge is being leveled against him. Now, you might be saying to yourself, why is this important? I hope that it becomes apparent to you throughout the message this morning why this is important. Luke gives more space to Stephen's defense in Acts chapter 7 than he does to any other sermon or any other message or any other narrative. This was crucial to Luke in the turn that the gospel makes away from just being purely a Jewish religion to a religion, to a faith, to a salvation that is available to all of us, the whole world over. This is a significant turning point as Luke is narrating the events, which means it ought to be significant for you and me as well. But there are three questions we need to look at this morning as we consider this text. Number one, Stephen is preaching that Jesus will destroy the temple. We know from the gospel accounts that Jesus said something very similar, if not completely identical to that. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, number one, what exactly did Jesus say? What exactly did he mean when he said it? Number two, what does Stephen mean? What does he say about Jesus? And is what Stephen is saying the same thing as what Jesus is saying? And number three, if it is true that Jesus did in fact say that he would destroy the temple, and if it is also true that what Stephen is saying is the same thing as what Jesus is saying, then in what sense are these witnesses who are testifying against Stephen, false witnesses. If it's true, then how is their testimony a false testimony? I want you to look with me first at this statement, what exactly did Jesus say? 
You don't have to flip there, but just listen. We know through various gospel accounts that Jesus did, in fact, claim that he would be the destruction of the temple. In Matthew chapter 26, and again in Mark chapter 14, these two passages tell us that at Jesus' trial, the night before he is to be crucified, multiple witnesses came forward and testified against him, saying, quote, This fellow, Jesus, said, I am able to destroy the temple and to build it in three days. That's one of the charges that they leveled against Christ when they were trying him the night before he was to be crucified. When the high priest asked Jesus to make an answer to these charges, to defend himself, Jesus did not answer. He didn't say a word. Again, in Matthew chapter 27 and then again in Mark 15, we know from these two passages Uh, They tell us that the crowds who passed by the cross while Jesus was being crucified mocked him by saying, quote, you who would destroy the temple and build it again in three days, go ahead and save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So we know, number one, the night before Jesus was to be crucified, that was a primary charge that was leveled against him. Number two, we know that as he is being crucified, that is one of the ways that they are mocking him. You who said you could build the temple and build it again in three days, go ahead and save yourself. Most importantly, though, we have the account from the Gospel of John, chapter 2. We know from this passage that during one of the Passovers, probably the first Passover of Jesus' ministry, his public ministry, As he makes his way into Jerusalem, he enters into the temple and he sees there money changers and people selling and engaging in business. And of course, it's extortionist. It's it's, uh, prohibitive. It's, It's quite the racket. And filled with anger, the text tells us that he fashions a a whip, a, cor- a series of cords, and he, he uses it to drive the money changers out of the temple, and he overturns their tables, and he sends all of their money scattering and dashing across the temple floor. And they come to him, and they say to him, how is it that you were able to do these things? What sign can you give us that shows us you actually have the authority to do these things? And of course, Jesus responds, and he says to them, destroy this temple And in three days, I will raise it up. Now, if you look at that carefully, he doesn't say, I will destroy this temple. John records for us simply that the statement was made, destroy this temple. There's no subject there. It's sort of ambiguous. However, this temple gets destroyed, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. They come back and they answer him when he says that, this is my sign that I show you for why I can drive you guys out of the temple and and whip you with with some whips. They come back and they answer him, you are going to build this temple in three days? It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And then John adds this comment, this narrator's comment, in which he says, quote, but he, Jesus, was speaking of the temple of his body. So John doesn't leave any doubt. He has this encounter with these guys. They're like, yeah, okay, you're going to build this temple in three days. It's taken us 46 years to build this temple. And then John clarifies that they misunderstood Christ. They thought he was referencing the actual physical temple compound. But the disciples observing all of this understand after the fact that no, actually Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. But Jesus says, you destroy the temple, 
and I will build it again in three days. We know that the destroying of the temple now refers to his death. And we also know from later on in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, that he was going to lay down his life voluntarily. And so it's very likely that at different points of his ministry, even though here in this John chapter 2 account, he doesn't specify it, it's very likely that at different points in his ministry, he may have said, I will destroy this temple, since it was clear that his death was under the sovereign control of God. He says, I will destroy this temple, or this temple will be destroyed. Either one is acceptable, but what is clear is that in three days, Christ would indeed raise that he would conquer that destruction. So what did he mean when he said that? What exactly was Jesus getting at? Did he simply mean that he would die and rise again? That his body would be destroyed and, that, and then he would raise himself up in three days? Obviously that's intended. But if that's all he meant, then why did he refer to himself as the temple? You see, when they asked him the question, what sign do you show us for your authority to drive us out of the temple? He could have just said, forget the temple. I am Jesus. But instead he says, destroy this temple. In this sense, Jesus is equating his body, who he is, with the temple. So even though John adds the parenthetical comment that he was referring to the temple of his body, we still have to reckon with the fact that as Christ was interacting with the priests and the Pharisees and the religious establishment, that there was in his mind this idea that his body, though he's referring to the destruction of his body, his body is in some sense to be understood as parallel to or synonymous with or perhaps even replacing or fulfilling the role and the function of the temple. When my kids, even now we still do it, but when my kids were younger, we would, on summer nights when they don't have school in the morning, sometimes throw up a flashlight on a far wall and, and do those little shadow figures, you know, when you put your hands together and uh, you have the flashlight, you kind of put your hands in front of the flashlight and you kind of make little, little sort of animal figures. And, of course, it's all up on the wall, and, and they're looking at it. They're like, oh, that's cool. And then they try to do different things like, you know, barking dog, and we'd make all kinds of weird animals. And, of course, uh, when you hold your hand closer to the light and further from the wall, the shadow on the wall is enormous. But as you step away from the light and you move yourself closer to the wall, the shadow gets smaller and smaller and smaller until, of course, your hand fulfills the shadow. The hand, the, the actual thing that is casting the shadow, completes the shadow, replaces the shadow. As Jesus is arguing with the religious establishment, with the priests, with all of these guys who are charged with the business of the temple, he says to them, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. If we look at the life of Christ, and if we consider all of the texts that speak to this, we understand that even though John makes the comment he was referring to his body, that in no way diminishes exactly what he might have been saying about the actual temple itself. If you look at the temple, we have there a priesthood. Individuals who are charged with maintaining a holy and righteous standing before God the Father above, whose duty it is to intercede on behalf of their fellow Israelites before God, whose duty it is to offer up sacrifices on behalf of their fellow man. 
Is that not what Christ does? In Hebrews 7.25, the Bible tells us that Jesus is our great high priest. After the order of Melchizedek, never, his priesthood is never to end. Or consider the animal sacrifices. Over and over and over again, multiple times a year on high holy days, as well as the daily and weekly offerings. I mean, year-round, the business of killing animals, shedding blood in order to cover sins. It is an ongoing business. We're talking millions of Jews, thousands of priests, billions of animals sacrificed. Lots of blood being shed over and over and over again to drive home the point that sin is horrific, that it is ghastly, that blood must be shed. And yet, despite all of that, the repetition never ends. We must sacrifice over and over and over again, which reinforces the point that as horrific as sin is, animal sacrifices can never satisfy. They will never placate or pacify or propitiate the wrath of God. And yet, the scriptures in Hebrews chapter 9 and again in chapter 10 say that Jesus offered himself and his own blood once, one time, for all and for all the sins of humanity. So he is the high priest to replace all priests. And additionally, he is the sacrifice to replace all sacrifices. But when we consider the temple, we also consider that there was a glory that was placed there. When Jesus made himself the mercy seat of the temple, as Paul describes in Romans chapter 3, and when he offered his own blood as the blood of the new covenant, the glory of God, that old Shekinah glory, which was described as resting on the temple, it came down and it rested on Christ. Peter says, quote, God raised him from the dead and gave to him the glory. He is, as James says, the Lord of glory. And so the temple is no longer the place where we go to behold or to see the glory of the Lord No, no, no. Jesus is now the place. So in every sense, we have a fulfilling of the temple in Christ. He is the priest, he is the sacrifice, and he is the glory. So when Jesus says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days, he is absolutely referring to the temple of his body. But... He is also speaking prophetically of the destruction of the temple compound. Is this what Stephen is saying? Look back at Acts. They instigated false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the laws of Moses. Um, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now think with me chronologically for just a second. The events that are being described for us here in Acts chapter 6 most likely happened within a period of a few months after Jesus has been crucified and raised from the dead. Now, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. Undoubtedly, he is referring to his crucifixion. I mean, there can be no doubt about this. He's talking about his crucifixion and his resurrection. This event has happened 
past tense. The false witnesses who are accusing Stephen say, we've heard him say that Jesus will destroy the temple. That's future tense. Now, what does this mean? Jesus says, I will destroy this temple or this temple will be destroyed and I will raise it up in three days. Stephen's saying, Jesus is destroying the temple, will destroy the temple. Now, scholars debate this. We know from history that in about AD 70, as the Romans sacked Jerusalem, the city was overthrown and in fact, the temple was completely and totally destroyed. As Luke is narrating this account to us from the Holy Spirit's inspiration, is he referencing that future destruction? It's possible. I don't want to be overly dogmatic. But as we look at this particular text, there doesn't seem to be any indication of that. There doesn't seem to be, from Luke's perspective, any explicit reference to the future destruction of the temple. So then the question is, what exactly does Stephen mean when he says, Jesus will destroy this temple? If you look back with me for just a moment, Acts chapter 6, verse 7. They've just appointed the deacons. The deacons are doing the ministry so that the apostles don't have to be bothered with serving food so that they can be free to preach the word. It's a wonderful feat of organization. And look at what it says in verse 7. The word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, you need to notice that phrase. Not just anybody can be a priest. It's not like if we're having a shortage of priests, we just go out and recruit a bunch of guys, run them through seminary, and then bada bing, bada boom, we're good to go. No, you have to be born to a certain house. You have to be raised in a certain family. There is a limited number of people. They are dependent upon the giving and the charitable contributions of all the rest of the nation of Israel. This is not something that you just easily replace. When the word of God is preached and the scripture tells us that a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith, you need to understand that this is a bottleneck that is beginning to choke the temple compound. If you don't have priests, you can't make sacrifices. So you can have all the animals in the world, you can have all the people coming from all over the empire, from all over the Mediterranean to offer sacrifices, but if you start losing priests to this newfangled religion that celebrates and worships Jesus, then despite the fact that the whole world is coming to the temple, despite the fact that you have no shortage of animals to sacrifice, you're still choking out the system. And what Stephen is saying is that Jesus has already fulfilled the temple system. He is our priest. He is our great sacrifice. And he is where the glory resides. And because of all of that, this thing is dying. It is already dead. And Jesus is putting the final nail in its coffin. That's what Stephen is saying. Which leads us to the third question. Knowing all of this to be true, how exactly is it that these witnesses that testify against Stephen are false? Look back. Go back to verse 11. It says, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words. Notice that blasphemous words. And then a little bit further on, in verse 13, they set up false witnesses who said, 
this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. Now, what they are saying Stephen is doing is true. Stephen is saying Jesus has fulfilled the temple. He has done away with the need for sacrifices and priests. And he now is where the glory of the Lord rests, not here in the temple. They hear all of that. And because they refuse to believe in Jesus, they consider his testimony to be blasphemous. God has commanded that there be a temple here in Jerusalem. God has ordained that there be priests who offer sacrifices. God is the one who has instructed us how it is that we are to sacrifice day in and day out, week in and week out, month after month, high holy feasts, high holy days. This is God's law, and you're telling us that Jesus does away with all of that. That's blasphemy. And if Jesus were false... That indeed would be blasphemy. But Jesus is true. What Luke is saying here, when he says that these are false witnesses, he's not saying that what they are accusing Stephen of is false. What Luke is telling us is that they are taking a true statement and they are putting a false spin upon it such that the statement, the accusation they make against him is framed in such a way that you cannot but help come to a negative conclusion. It's like with the abortion movement. Christians the world over stand up and they say, the life of the baby inside the womb is precious. It is created in the image of God. It deserves to be protected. And those who would insist upon the unmitigated and unparalleled right, as they call it, to murder the child, frame the debate this way. How dare you suggest that a woman cannot choose what to do with her own body? And of course, that is not the argument. The argument is this. This is not your body. This is the body of another person, equal to you in every respect, fragile and intended by God to be cared for by you. We are not suggesting that you are not entitled to the sanctity of your own body. We're suggesting that you're murdering a person. And I don't say that to condemn. I don't say that to suggest that women who feel that they are trapped into this choice, that they have no alternative, that they are somehow worse sinners than any of us in this room. I say that to illustrate the point that it is a false paradigm, that it is a false way of framing the issue in order to castigate, to denigrate, and to spin as evil those who would suggest that the life of the child is precious. In the same way that we are called to responsibly engage with individuals who are arguing for pro-choice, which is another way of saying the freedom to murder children, to responsibly engage with them in a manner that is loving and gracious and yet holds to the truth, 
Stephen here is doing that over this issue of the temple. You'll notice the text says, Stephen, verse 8, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people, some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up, and they disputed with him. They argued with him. Verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen knows that they're going to take his argument that Christ is the fulfillment of the temple, that as a result, the temple's already over and done with. They're, they're arguing with, with him. And the scripture says that full of wisdom and the spirit, he argued right back. Don't miss that, church. Don't miss that. He knows that these men will stop at nothing to preserve their system. He is not oblivious to the fact that this is going to cost him his life. And yet the scripture says that he was not foolish in arguing the point, just the opposite. It says he was full of wisdom. From which we conclude standing up for the truth of the cross, standing up for the love of God bestowed upon us through what Jesus has done for us, disputing, confronting, arguing, but doing so in a manner that is gracious and loving. This is what the word of God calls us to do. If the cross is true, as we know it to be, than anything else that we would take comfort in other than praising and proclaiming the cross is false. A couple of weeks ago, Notre Dame Cathedral tragically caught fire. And all of France was dismayed and grieved at the loss of what they considered to be a great national treasure. Of course, it is a testimony. As one commentator said, as one commentator said, the Cathedral of Notre Dame is indeed a monument to the skill and the efficiency of French engineering and French architecture. And I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to tour or to see Notre Dame. It is indeed a giant, colossal cathedral. You walk in, and in true Gothic architectural fac- fashion, the ceiling just towers way above you. As you behold the light streaming through the stained glass window, the largest stained glass window at any church anywhere in the world, you cannot help but feel very, very small. And indeed, that's the nature of Gothic architecture. It is intended to make you feel small and insignificant so that you can begin to sense or appreciate something of the majesty and the greatness of God. And yet when Notre Dame caught fire and burned, as all of France mourned, they did not mourn it as a place where we go to worship God, though a handful surely did. They mourned its loss as a great tragedy to French honor. Immediately afterward, editorials on every page, why was this 
great monument to French engineering and French architecture allowed to fall into disrepair. What idiot made the mistake of leaving electrical equipment too close to flammable substances? Why was this not taken care of sooner? And over and over again, France has lost a great treasure testifying not to Jesus. Very little, if anything, was ever said about Christ. No, we've lost a monument to the greatness of France. These priests, these Pharisees are arguing with Stephen not about the truth of the point of whether or not Jesus is the fulfillment and therefore the destruction of the temple. Their problem is that in that temple they find their joy. They find their glory. I wonder if that isn't some of us here this morning. We are all saved by grace. But do we find in our own hearts a delight in the historicity of First Baptist Church? The oldest church in Kamloops dating back to 1890, founded before the city itself was founded in 1892. Do we find great joy in the fact that we have had multiple buildings at different locations throughout the city, that there are pictures and artifacts going back to a previous time and a previous generation? Do we come here delighting ourselves that we are faithful to the Lord and we can pat ourselves on the back and we can look around at all of the history and all of the artifacts and say to ourselves, yes, indeed, we're holy because of that sort of thing? Take it a step further. Do we take joy in who we are because we give? Do we take joy in who we are because we don't lie and we consider ourselves generally righteous people? Do we delight in all of those things? And don't misunderstand me. To be a Christian is indeed a call to repent and to follow Christ, to turn away from wickedness and to walk in righteousness. But all of that is secondary to us finding our delight in knowing Jesus Christ. A number of years ago, this has been 2012, I think, there was a group of individuals who came from another uh, religious establishment in town. And even now there's some debate over whether or not you might call this particular group a, a cult or perhaps just a really misguided church. And they came and they had suffered horrible abuse at the hands of their previous pastor. And they had been working so hard, so terribly hard, believing and thinking that it was entirely dependent upon them and their efforts to preach the gospel to the city of Kamloops and to see everyone saved. And of course, the Holy Spirit had done a work and had opened eyes and had convicted hearts so that one by one, this church or cult, as some refer to it, began to crumble. And as they began to leave, a handful of them settled in at the church where I was at the time, and I began to talk with them. And of course, they had worked very hard. They had accumulated tens of thousands of dollars and thousands of dollars worth of assets, numerous different things, and I said to them, you probably need to consider taking steps in order to secure those assets. You don't want them to spoil in the hands of a malevolent actor. And their response was universal. We are just 
playing too tired to keep fighting. Is that you this morning? Not that we here at First Baptist Church are a cult. Don't get me wrong, I'm not a cult leader, okay? Of course, that's just what a cult leader would say, hey? (laughs) Trust me, wink, wink, hey? But do you come here this morning working so hard for the Lord that you find yourself too weary to continue? Jesus shows us that we can strive and strive and strive and work and work and work and sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice. We can build great monuments and indeed we're called to do all of that to show us one simple truth. All of our best efforts do nothing to bring us home to the Father. He must come for us. And indeed, he has come. He has sent his son. Jesus tells parables to this effect in Luke. In Luke chapter 15, arguing with those same priests who took such joy in their temple, such delight in their sacrifices. Jesus says, What man among you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine to go in search of the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When we gather together as a body, we understand the importance of being together as a body, as a church, absolutely. When we look at the cross, sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that Jesus died for a great people, which is true, but paradoxically, not completely true. Yes, he died for a great many people, but he died for you. Don't miss that. If his salvation would mean deliverance for one, and if that one was you and only you, Believe that Jesus would die just for you. That's exactly the point of the parable he tells in Luke 15. He would leave the 99 to go in search of the one. And so you need to understand today as we come to the conclusion of this worship service this morning, all of our efforts, all this temple, all this ritual, it is all a shadow to show that we cannot write ourselves with the Father, but instead we are called to rest in his salvation for us on the cross. Jesus comes for you. He died for you. And so this morning, if you are weary and if you are tired of striving to earn or somehow show yourself worthy of God's salvation, I invite you to trade the shadow for the Savior. Church, would you pray with me? Father, we just thank you for sending your Son. We understand, Lord, that you did indeed establish a temple, that you did indeed call forth priests and animal sacrifices and all of this ritual 
We know, Lord, that your purpose in all of that was to signal the coming of something greater. Lord, the greater is now here. The greater is your son. And he has saved us. And in saving us, he has destroyed the temple. Father, I pray that we would not miss that point, that crucial point, that we can rest in the love of Christ the love which you have for all of us. Father, if there are any here today who are still striving and still working and still seeking to earn or somehow show themselves worthy of your salvation by their own efforts, if there are any here today, Lord, who are mistaken into believing that they can indeed merit your grace, I pray, God, you dispel that notion, that your light would wash away that deception. Help us to rest in your son, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.